This morning, we enter into a, a new book of the Bible, actually a letter. Probably be more appropriate to call it that because that's what it is. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, I would invite you to grab one of the blue ones, probably underneath the seat around you. I believe, I believe it's page 986. Uh, that'll bring you to 1 Thessalonians. If I'm wrong about that, please correct me. This morning, we are, uh, we are simply going to, um, I'm simply going to introduce you to the, to the letter, okay? So we're not going to get into any particular verses, or we're not going to do our normal thing that you're used to, which is a verse-by-verse study of the letter. Uh, this morning, I want to basically explore the historical circumstances that caused this letter to be written, Okay? And the reason we should consider these things first is because it will help us to appreciate and understand the letter much better if we understand the historical circumstances surrounding it that brought it into existence in the first place. Uh, One commentator said, in the study of no other form of literature is it more important to know something of the life situation amid which it was produced than in the study of a letter. You need to know some things. If you're sitting down to read a letter, you need to know some things like who's writing it. You need to know some things about them. It would be helpful. Who are they writing it to? Why are they writing it? Those kind of things. What's going on? Otherwise, you could misunderstand the letter. Or at minimum, you wouldn't really fully get all that the letter is attempting to communicate from the writer to the reader or readers. So, We're going to begin with that, and I hope you'll take some notes, because as I move through Thessalonians, I'll probably refer back to some of these matters that we're going to be looking at or considering this morning, circumstances that caused the letter to be written, and uh, who who wrote it, who it was written to. So, as we explore that, we'll just do it by reading the first verse of the letter, and that'll be a jump-off point to help us look at these things. So, you can turn there, if you haven't already, 1 Thessalonians 1.1. And I'll make comments as we move through this. And we're going to be moving fairly quickly. We'll be looking at Thessalonians, but also the book of Acts, which I'll explain in a second. So, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus. Okay, if you have an NIV translation, again, the NIV has chose to use Silas there. But the name is Silvanus. So, we talked about this. If you remember, at the end of 1 Peter the NIV did the same thing. It's Silvanus, 1 Peter 5.12, that Peter refers to, but Paul, I'm sorry, the NIV translation puts Silas. Why? Because it's believed in Peter it's the same person, Silas and Silvanus. And here for certain, it is the same person, Uh, basically just two different names. This Silvanus should be regarded as the same person that is called Silas in Acts, in Acts. And one commentator just points out that Luke always, Luke, who wrote Acts, always calls him Silas, but Paul, when he's referring to this gentleman, always calls him Silvanus. And uh, if you compare, you can, we won't do it, but you can look at this later on if you'd like. If you compare Acts 18.5 and 2 Corinthians 1.19 and what they're talking about and the people they're referring to, you'll see there, because both names are used, it's the same individual, Silas, Silvanus. All right? And it's possible that Silvanus was his adopted name of Roman citizenship. So he had two names, but it's the same person. So again, back to the text. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you in peace. So we've talked about this. I, I believe Thomas has talked about it too as he introduced letters or Colossians to you. But it was customary in the ancient world... Uh, for all letters to begin in the same way, a little bit different than the way we begin our letters. We normally begin by addressing the person to whom we're writing, but in the ancient world, they begin by uh, pointing out who the, the writer was. So, you know, we, we have to look at the end of our letter to see who wrote it. They would look at the beginning. And then, once they identified who was writing it, they would then address the readers. And uh, there would be a greeting, which is all these things you see here. And sometimes there would be a, a thanksgiving or a wish of the reader's welfare in addition to that. So this is just a a customary way that letters were written. It's a letter. It's an epistle. So as was customary, the the writer of the letter would announce themselves first. Who's the first name in the list? Paul. Okay? 
And in this case, that's what we see, Paul. But then he adds the names Silvanus or Silas, same person, and Timothy uh, to his name before identifying who he was writing to. Who is he writing to? The church in the church of the Thessalonians. Okay? So the question is, why does Paul include Silvanus and Timothy? Are they co-authors or co-writers of the letter? Did they help him write it? The answer is no, they are not. Paul is the writer of the letter. It is clear from the letter that he is the sole author. Okay, so for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, as we're reading through the letter, you'll find this. We're just picking up in the middle of a statement here. Because we, we wanted to come to you, so that we would be those individuals that he spoke of. But then he says, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. So uh, there you see the I, as he's writing, is Paul. He's the one writing the letter. So then what exactly do these men have to do with Paul's letter to the Thessalonians? Why did he include them along with his name? Obviously, we know why he put his name. He's writing the letter. But why did he include them? So to answer that and to explore the letter further, we need to look or turn to the book of Acts. And I'm just going to, hopefully, these, um, these texts will show up on the screen at the pace that I'm trying to, to read this and, and uh, share this message with you. So you don't have to necessarily turn there. But if you want and try to keep up, Acts 16, you, we're going to start there. We're going to pick up the story really right in Acts 16. And that puts us, in case you don't know, just for some context, it puts us right in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey, his second missionary journey. So Paul and his traveling companion or his partner in the ministry, in the gospel ministry, Silas or Silvanus, after preaching and teaching the, the, the word of the Lord in Antioch and then having traveled through Syria and Cilicia to strengthen the churches that they had established or were established there on Paul's first missionary journey, now Paul and Silas or Silvanus, okay, it's the same guy, so I'm going to refer to it in both ways, because when we're in Acts, Silas is how it's referred to, and, and uh, because it's Luke, and when Paul refers to him, it's Silvanus. But now Paul and Silas, on, their, on Paul's second missionary journey, in proclaiming the gospel and planting churches, they, they come now to Derby and to Lystra. That's where we're picking up in the story of Acts. And remember, or if you don't know, Acts is really just a record of the early history of the church, of its beginnings of its growth, of its expansion, of the spread of the gospel in the planting of uh, gospel-centered, Christ-worshiping uh, churches. So we pick up now in Acts 16. A disciple was there named Timothy. All right, so there's that name. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well-spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Accompany him on his second missionary journey in the process of planting and strengthening churches and proclaiming the gospel. And so, and I'm not going to cover every single detail here because we're just, we're referencing this so that we can understand Thessalonians better. So Timothy did, he accompanied him. And now it is Paul, Silas, and Timothy together on Paul's second missionary journey. With me so far? Okay. Now we'll pick it up in verse six. And they... We know who they, they are, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul. These are real places in history, real cities. So a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, his team, sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I didn't have, I don't have maps or anything, but the idea is they're kind of moving this direction and they're over here now, and now God has called them to move down here into Macedonia. Okay, and preach the gospel there. 
So they were tempted to go to Asia. They couldn't make their way up there. And so they're now making their way, according to this vision, they're going to come down into Macedonia. So think, think of Macedonia for a moment like a California. It's just this big, gigantic area, but there are various cities within the region of Macedonia okay, that Paul is going to, to enter into and preach the gospel to. So because of this vision now, they're going to move to Macedonia. Now, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, the city of the Thessalonians, okay, to whom this letter is written, right? To the church of the Thessalonians. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, all right? It was the largest city of Macedonia, with a population at that time estimated to be as high as 200,000 people, so fairly significant. Uh, the city was predominantly made up of Greeks, of Greeks, so not Jews, but Greeks, and most of them would have been pagans or idolaters, okay? Gentiles, Greeks. But the city also included a large group of Jewish people, of religious Jews. So uh, one writer just commenting on that, on the Jewish colony, he said they, they had there an influential, there in Thessalonica, synagogue where the Jewish religion and its form of worship Forms of worship were furthered, and, and they exerted a strong proselytizing influence upon a considerable number of Gentiles in that day. In other words, they, they reached out to Gentiles to try to draw them into their Jewish faith, to these Greeks. So there were a good number of Greeks there that had, to some degree, adopted the God of Judaism as their own. Abandoned paganism, multi, multitude of gods, false gods, fake gods, and embraced the one true God of Judaism in this city in Thessalonica. Uh, beyond that, and I'm only telling you these things because they become helpful for us to understand the letter as we move forward, uh, Thessalonica, again, mostly pagan, uh, one writer says, it never acquired a reputu- reputation for immorality like Corinth. Corinth was a very immoral city, heavily steeped in its paganism and idolatry. Yet, in Thessalonica, moral practices were frightfully common in its idolatrous society. Okay, false gods, immorality. The two go hand in hand. Uh, the effects of that paganism clutched its inhabitants, and it was uh, truly degrading. So now, that's Thessalonica. It's in Macedonia. Paul and his team have been called by God to go into Macedonia and preach the gospel. But before Paul and his missionary team come to Thessalonica, beautiful port city, there was Philippi, Philippi on the way. So, that, so in that, we pick up in Acts 16, 11. So setting sail from Troas, and you'll see the, the word we there, we, that means that Luke is also with them at this point. Luke is the one writing Acts. Luke was a traveling companion we know of Paul's, a doctor, so on and so forth. Uh, He wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. So Luke is with them as well at this point, and he says we. So it's possibly he picked up on the team in Troas. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. And we remained in the city some days. And again, uh, there they preached the gospel in Philippi. That was the ministry, a gospel-preaching, church-planting ministry. But as a result of their ministry, Paul and Silas were seized, beaten, and thrown into prison. Paul and Silas were. That's what the Acts tells us. Again, I'm skipping a lot of the details, just trying to pick up so you can kind of follow the flow. However, they were soon released from prison, but the authorities asked them to leave the city, and so they departed. And that brings us to chapter 17 of Acts, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, thank you. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay, so here we are. We're finally in Thessalonica. 
And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Okay, first, just that passage. First, who is included in the they? Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, who is included? And then they finally come to Thessalonica. Who's included in the they of verse 1 that came to Thessalonica there to preach the gospel? It is generally assumed that it is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And Timothy, but not Luke. And that's why we see a little change here. It would explain the change from we to they. He says in 1611, we made a direct voyage. So Luke, who's writing Acts, includes himself. But now the sudden he changes to they. Now they had passed. So it's assumed that Luke stayed behind in Philippi and that Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy made their way into Thessalonica. And that very well may be. But I just want to explain something to you. Um, As you read on in Luke's account of the events surrounding Thessalonica, Paul and Silas are mentioned twice in verses 4 and 10, but Timothy's not mentioned at all. So I'll show them to you. Acts 17, 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. No mention of Timothy. And then at the end of their stay in Thessalonica, the text says in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Timothy in the record of Acts, does not come back into the picture until verse 14. But at that point, we're now in a different city, Berea. Berea. Uh, And I'll show you that. This is at the end of Paul's stay in Berea, Berea, and Acts records this in verse 14 of chapter 17, verses 14 and 15. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to see, but Silas and Timothy, okay, there we see Timothy's there again, remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and after receipt, escorted Paul, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they, Silas and Timothy, departed. All right, so listen. It may be that like Luke, Timothy stayed behind at Philippi. It may be, okay, because we don't see any mention of him there. It could just be that Luke didn't mention him that he only focused on Paul and Silas, but that Timothy was there and left with them, and he was there, and he came, and he arrived with the original team into Thessalonica and preached the gospel there before they got booted out and then made their way uh, on. Uh, So he would have, in that case, then he stayed with, it's possible he stayed with Luke in Philippi and then joined up with Paul and Silas in Berea sometime later because we know he's there now as uh, Luke records the events of Berea and what happened there. But because Paul includes Timothy's name in his letter to the Thessalonians, it is generally thought that Timothy was a part of the three-man team that founded the church in Thessalonica. Right? So you have Paul. He's the writer of the letter, but why include these names, Timothy and Silvanus? Well, because the Thessalonians must have known them, must have had some familiarity with them. There must have been some involvement between the two on some level, right? So it is normally assumed it was because that was the team that went into Thessalonica, preached the gospel there, and saw the church formed, the local church there. That's possible, but it's also possible that Timothy wasn't there. He's not mentioned. It just has to be assumed. And uh, one writer says that Timothy's name is included in the salutation, that it's included, does not prove He had a share in the initial work at Thessalonica. It doesn't prove it. It just makes sense. It certainly makes sense. But it does prove he stood in close contact with the Thessalonian believers. So listen, if Timothy wasn't there in that initial arrival to preach the gospel, if he wasn't, then why include his name? It appears to indicate that there is some close connection between these two, Silvanus and Timothy, and the Thessalonians, and of course, Paul who's the writer of the letter. You with me? So hold that thought. This is fun. I, I, I love 
And I love the scriptures. I love them. This is a, these are real facts, real stories, not made up stuff. And you can and see how it all comes together so beautifully as you look at the word in, in whole. So hold that thought about Timothy for a second. It's possible he was there on the initial trip. It's possible that he wasn't there, that he stayed in Philippi and then joined the team later. But then why is he included in the, of the announcement of the letter? All right. Second, that was... That issue. So second, we read in Acts 7-2 that Paul, as was his custom, went to the Jewish synagogue within the city, Thessalonica. Uh, he would do that, and he would go into, this was his custom, he would go into the city, if it existed, the Jewish synagogue, which he did on the Sabbath. He would visit them on the Sabbath. When's the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath? Saturday, right? That's the Jewish day of religious observance. And he preached the gospel to those who were there. That's, that's what he did. He'd arrive to a city. If they had a synagogue, he would first go to the synagogue. Okay? And he would start his ministry there, preaching to those that are there. And that makes sense because he would find there an audience who would understand the scriptures for sure that he was referring to. Right? So he could immediately testify to them. And he had, in his ministry, he would always go to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And, he, and these people, as he arrived, would be familiar with those texts that he would be basing his arguments on to help them see that this Jesus, who had died and was resurrected, is the Christ that their Old Testament scriptures had foretold of. So, uh, so that was his approach, right? He would, he would go into the synagogue, argue from the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament wasn't compiled yet at this point. The scriptures were the Old Testament. So he would go to his people, the Jewish people, and those who were there in the synagogue, which would be some Greeks who had, who were, who had uh, adopted the, the God of Judaism as their own. And he would, he would argue from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah, the Christ, that those Old Testament scriptures foretold, talked about, that that Messiah had to suffer and die. That's what he had to help them understand, that they still missed. He had to suffer and die. They thought he was just going to come back, establish his kingdom, and, and rule and reign, and crush the enemies. But he had to come back and first deal with sin. And in order to do that, he was going to have to suffer and die. And so he's, he, once he convinces them that the scriptures do teach that the Messiah, the divine Christ, the king, would have to suffer and die for the sake of his people, that he might make them right with God so that they might enter into his kingdom, his righteous kingdom, once he convinced them of that, then he would proclaim to them the Jesus of Nazareth, tell them the story of his life, of his death, and his resurrection, and then he would put them together. It's the same guy. This Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And if he is, and he is, then you must repent and bow and worship him and call out upon him to be your savior. So that's, that was his approach. So another person adds uh, to that. The fact that he is the Christ, of course, implies that he is he was also, or will also, fulfill the prophecies concerning his coming reign, right? So the, the Old Testament foretold of this king who would come and rule and reign in his kingdom over his people, the citizens of that kingdom. So this naturally led then, as Paul was explaining these things at the synagogue, to the teaching concerning the return of Christ as the expected king, which, by the way, is something that 1 Thessalonians addresses, right? Because he would be explaining that to them. So, um, now, hold that thought, return of Christ as the expected king. So he comes in, he's working in the synagogues, he's doing that, it says for three Sabbaths, right? So how long would that be? Three weeks. See, you guys got it. Three weeks, at least three weeks. So, picking up now in 17.2, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them, how many? Some. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Let's see there, you see the mention of the two. We don't see a mention of Timothy. 
He could have been somewhere else, or he's just not there. He's still in Philippi. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So what does that mean, joined them? They got it. They repented. They turned and received Christ as Lord and Savior, as the Messiah, Jesus. They received him as he really is. As did a great many of the devout Greeks. So another translation says God-fearing. God-fearing Greeks. They're Greeks who, as I explained to you, had come over to some degree to Judaism in the sense of embracing the God, the one true God, abandoning their pagan ways and embracing the one true God of Judaism. And so now they're there at the synagogue as well. They hear the message. Some of the Jews said, we got it, Paul, and we agree, and we're following Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Many of the Greeks that were there got it and embraced the Jesus of Nazareth. You with me? Okay. And then it says, and not a few of the leading women. One writer commenting on this says, Paul's synagogue audience was composed mainly of two classes of hearers, Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Members of the latter class, as usual, proved to be the most responsive to his message. They may have included some heathens honestly in search of truth, kind of hanging around, listening, but the usual meaning of the term points to Gentiles who, disillusioned with their pagan gods and pagan morality, had been drawn to the pure ethical teachings of the Jews. They had become informal adherents of the synagogue as worshipers of Jehovah, the God of Israel, without accepting the rigorous ritualistic demands of Judaism. So they hadn't fully embraced Judaism and all the laws and circumcision and all that necessarily, but they had embraced the God of Judaism. So they were referred to as God-fearers. Okay? You with me so far? All right. Now picking back up again in verse 4 of Acts 17. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. See, we're, we're basically reading the story of why we even have a letter written to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica that we refer to as 1 Thessalonians. And this would also explain 2 Thessalonians as well, but this, we're finding out why. Why would he even write to them? What happened? What were the circumstances that led up to this? So, some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But, okay, verse 5, the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. So someone who lived there and was working with Paul and Silas that we're introduced to here, Christian man, we can assume, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, Christian brothers, before the city authority, shouting, these men who turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. That is a serious charge. All right, so... The Roman Empire rules the, uh, rules the world at this time, okay? Thessalonica was considered a free city in the sense that they were allowed to govern themselves, but they were still under the ultimate rule of the Roman Empire. But the charge is, is these guys come in and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar the, 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 the emperor of Rome, the one in charge of the Roman Empire, saying there's another king, Jesus. So that's the accusation made. So for the, the guys that are, over, that are ruling over Thessalonica, uh, the governing authorities there, that's an alarming charge because if Rome gets word of it, they may come in and, and put a beating on them and on top of that, take away their ability to govern themselves, saying, how dare you allow these men to exist and, and create this uproar that there is any other king but Caesar. Caesar is king. Caesar is God as far as they were concerned, or a god. So, pretty serious charge, right? And they probably got that charge. They could take it and twist it a little bit because 
Paul would have been explaining Jesus, the Christ, and the fact that he is the king and he's coming again to establish his kingdom. But they kind of take that twist a little bit and go, look, he's trying to get everyone to follow a different king, you know, this king Jesus. And so, oh, we can't do that. And so then the people and the city authorities were disturbed. Uh Uh-oh, what do we do when they heard these things? And so when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right, I'll come back to that in a second. This was like probably the most reasonable thing they could do to get rid of these guys before Rome came down on them and took away their ability to govern themselves, really. So we'll get to that. But what about the length of stay in Thessalonica? How long did did Paul and his ministry team, we, we know for certain it's Silas, could have been Timothy, how long did they stay there? What's the minimum time we know they stayed there? Three weeks, right? Because we're told in Acts that he was there three Sabbaths, so three weeks. Um, And when you read the account of Acts, or Luke's account in Acts, of the Thessalonian mission, you get the idea as you're reading, it's kind of implied that right after he was there three weeks, this riot broke out, and then they're booted out, okay? But you don't have to conclude that. You don't have to conclude that. So, If you just go back to verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Verse 4. Now verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. So in between verse 4 and verse 5 could have been a a period of time. It doesn't mean it necessarily happened immediately. Like on the third week, as soon as he was done with the synagogue, the Jews busted out in in, uh, this plan to get, get these guys booted out. There could have been a gap in between verse 4 and 5 of time. It's just that Luke's picking up here with the next thing that that happened that he wants to talk to you about. Um, And so there could have been a period of ministry, which was very uh, common to the way Paul did things, to the Gentiles before the Jews staged their right. In other words, he's ministering in the synagogues. They may have finally said, enough, we don't want you here, because only a few of the Jews actually... Uh, came on board. So that means many of them that were there didn't want anything to do with this. So they finally probably said, we could guess, they booted him out. And then he continued to minister to the Gentiles. That was his normal uh, mode of operation. And the Jews probably then were watching these unsaved Jews, unbelieving Jews, those who refused to accept Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And they watched and they got more upset and more angry and more jealous because they're watching Paul take all of their converts away from them or potential converts. Because remember, they have their own proselytizing campaign for the Greeks that are there trying to draw them in, right? So they're upset, they're frustrated, and it finally comes to a head and they They devise a plan, and they go after him, and they eventually get him expelled from the city. Uh, And the reason why we think that Paul was there longer than just three weeks is because Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 about pagan conversion, like pagans, just flat-out pagans converted, which is a little bit different than God-fearing Greeks. God-fearing Greeks had already abandoned their paganism. But Paul refers to the pagans that were there that also repented of their idolatry, and embraced the one true God. So when did that happen? Probably a ministry that took place after his ministry to the synagogue. Beyond that, when you look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, the language there about the ministry that took place implies that there was a longer period of time, this follow-up, this back and forth between Paul and his team, the Thessalonians, Christians. It implies a longer period of time than three weeks. But probably most important in trying to determine how long was Paul there is Philippians 4.16. Philippians 4.16 says this, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So to the Philippians, he's just recounting that while he was in Thessalonica, he sought help, and the Philippians answered with help. But they did it multiple times, or once and again, and so... Uh, it's possible, one writer commentator points out, it's possible that these repeated gifts of aid to Paul were received during that short period of three, three weeks, but it's not probable. It's not probable. When you talk about the time that goes back and forth, and they didn't have internet or phones or anything like that. Just to, the whole process took time to notify I need aid, then to get the aid, and the travel time, they didn't have cars. It's unlikely that this all occurred in three weeks. So, 
We don't know how long Paul was there. We know he was there and his team were there at least three weeks, but it's, um, it is thought that he was probably there closer to three months, trying to take all of the facts into consideration in the timelines. Three months, maybe as long as six months. Paul and his team were there. Why am I telling you all that? I'm telling you all that because it demonstrates he had time to really, he spent time with these folks and a relation, strong relationships were built. And you'll see that as we read through the letter. He cares about them greatly. Second, uh, the Jews in Thessalonica who rejected the gospel when they couldn't take it any longer, they got Paul and Silas thrown out of the city, right? And we read that they took author- the authorities took security from Jason. What is that? They took security from Jason. It's thought that that is a, um, that Jason, who we, we can assume that they met in his home, Jason was housing them. Um, if security was taken to Jason, it's like a bond. So basically, these guys are creating an uproar. They're creating the potential because they're preaching the gospel. And uh, according to the, the Jews were upset with it, said, look it, look it, they're, they're calling us to, to follow someone other than Caesar, to go against his ways. They're calling this Jesus king. So there's an uproar, there's a disturbance. We don't want that disturbance to get larger and have Rome get involved. That's, we definitely don't want them here in our business. So what do we do? All right, listen, Jason, uh, you're going to tell them to get on their way. We don't want them causing a ruckus here anymore. They can't be here. And, and for that, we're going to take a security, probably a financial deposit, like a bond of some sort, so that if they, if they do cause any more problems here or cause an uproar, their presence here leads to an uproar, we're going to, we're going to keep that, that bond. So now there's a financial investment in uh, trying to keep the peace, basically. It was, it was, a, it was probably the the best way that they thought they could try to control the situation. These aren't Christians. They're not believers. They're, they're Greeks. They're pagan worshipers. But they're like, how do we deal with this? And so they took a bond from Jason. Jason paid it. Jason probably and friends came up with the money. So this demand then would make it impossible for Paul and Silas to keep working in the city. Otherwise, the Jews who are watching them would you know, raise a ruckus again, so they'd have to leave. And so... Uh, One writer points out, if they were to risk any further preaching there, the Jews would undoubtedly stage another riot. This would involve Jason and his fellow Christians, who probably contributed to this bond, in serious financial loss and would arouse the active hostility of the magistrates against the church. In other words, those in charge. They'd be like, what are you guys doing? Don't you realize the risk you're taking? And now they take the bond, keep the money, and then come down on them for not getting these guys out who are causing these problems. You with me? All right. Now, we also learn from Acts that the unbelieving Jews followed Paul to the next town. These unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica, they're so angry, they're so upset, they follow Paul. So Acts 17, the brothers immediately, so, you know, hey, they take this bond from Jason. Jason says, okay. So they decide, all right, we'll send them away. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, the next town kind of on the map there. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, just like they always, that was the business. That's how they did it. Now listen what it says. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them, do you see that? Isn't that cool? So back at Thessalonica, only some of them but these Jews actually, instead of just assuming things or just ha- this is how we're going to have it and we don't want to hear what you have to say, Paul, they actually looked at the scriptures. And when they did, they realized Paul is right. And so they are, they are uh, commended for their nobility in that. They received the word with all eagerness. They wanted to hear. They examined the scriptures to see these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So there we go again. And people are being converted uh, to, to Christianity, and a church is being formed. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, so somehow they heard, someone probably came back and said, you won't believe this, that guy that was there, he's here now, and he's the same thing, and you won't believe it. A lot of the Jews of the synagogue are converting, and they're believing Jesus. Ugh! Right? 
So when the Jews of Thessalonica learned the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. So see, we know Timothy's there. He could have came with him from Thessalonica, or he could have come uh, from Philippi and finally made his way here. So those who conducted escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed, Silas and Timothy. Anyway, at some point, Timothy and Silas apparently joined Paul in Athens as he requested. Okay? How do we know that? How do we know Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy, or Silvanus and Silas and Timothy, joined Paul in Athens as he requested? We don't know that from Acts. It just says they departed, but nothing about them being in Athens. Okay? But rather, we know it from 1 Thessalonians. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians now. He's writing to the Thessalonians. They're, he's writing to them because their church is there now because of their gospel preaching ministry. They were booted out of Thessalonica because the Jews uh, were upset with them. So he says in verse 17, so we know he wasn't there a long, long time, not as long as he probably wanted to be, at minimum three weeks, maybe as long as three months or so. It says in verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, so he's referring to what the unbelieving Jews did. They stirred up the riot, got them kicked out. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. What is he talking about? Beloved, he told them they would experience afflictions. He knew what would happen when they left because they themselves were being afflicted and persecuted by the Jews there that were stirring up a, a riot and working against the gospel preaching ministry, the unbelieving Jews, those who were still rejecting Jesus as the Christ. So now they're experiencing that. He, he leaves, but now the church has left and they begin to become persecuted. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, afflictions. It reminds us of 1 Peter, doesn't it? For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. That's the devil. And our labor would be in vain. So what you see here, uh, just, I mean, there's lots here, but I just want to point out this. Paul's heart, right? Paul's heart, Paul's concern for this, this young body, probably like one-year-old church at this point, one brand new church in Thessalonica, Paul's love for them, for the people of God, for the local church here in Thessalonica. That's all I want you to see that. You see his love, his care, his concern. That's what drove him to send Timothy to them. He was very concerned about them and their faith and their perseverance in the faith and, and those things. One writer says, ever since Paul had been torn away from his Thessalonian converts, his pastoral heart had been deeply concerned about them. He was well aware that he had left them a heritage of suffering. He had indeed warned them that the suffering awaited them in, be in becoming believers. But would they endure when subjected to the fiery test? His own experience of the relentless hatred of the Thessalonian Jews, even at Berea, only increased his concern for his new converts. If the Jews had hounded him all the way to Berea, what would they do to his, to his followers who did not move? They didn't leave. They're still there dealing with these very same Jews that hunted Paul down. He could well imagine the bitter attacks to which they would be subjected. The uncertainty concerning the effect on the Thessalonians of the storm of persecution raging around them produced an unbearable strain on Paul. 
unable to endure the suspense he decided. See, they didn't have, it would have been awesome if Paul had Twitter or something like that, a Facebook account, but nothing like that. So the only way they might know is to be there or to send someone who can find out what's going on. You have to wait for them to return, hope they return. You know, there's robbers on the road, all of that stuff. So you can see the suspense in Paul's heart and his, his anxiety. So he decided that Timothy should return to Thessalonica to encourage the brethren and to bring back a report concerning that local church. Now listen, Timothy, he says, would have had no great difficulty in going back to Thessalonica because he had not been publicly identified with the disturbance there. See, it's either he was there and they, they didn't identify him with the disturbance, or he wasn't there because he stayed in Philippi. That makes sense to me. And that's why he says, Timothy, you go back. They don't know you, so when you get there, the Jews don't, they won't know exactly who you are. You can you kind of sneak in and talk to the Thessalonians and find out what's going on and strengthen them. You can get in, you can get out without causing an uproar, possibly causing J- Jason to lose his security, give up that financial, you know, financial commitment and not create more persecution on the church. So Timothy goes back. Makes sense to me. And that's why I said, hold that thought about Timothy. Either he was there with the initial team, which is certainly possible, or he remained in Philippi. We know eventually he does join Paul again in the city after Thessalonica, but it's suggested that he probably stopped at Thessalonica on his way down just to to greet the church there, knowing that's where Paul was going to greet the church there. He might have got to know them then. But either way, we know at this point he is sent back and he spends time encouraging the church and getting a report from them. So that is why that he would, in my opinion, that he's included in that initial uh, part of the letter. Paul, Silas, Silvanus, and Timothy. They're all a part of this work to one degree or another in Thessalonica, this church planting work, and connected with the people of God, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Ah. So after Athens, we're getting close. After Athens, Acts records this, after the time there. After this, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth. All right, so then Paul eventually ends up in Corinth. That's where we believe the letter was actually written, uh, to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica. He wrote it from Corinth. And uh, Acts 18.5 says, Then when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So he's there doing what he does. We know he sent Timothy away, where? To Thessalonica, to encourage the church that he was so concerned about and to get a report so he could hear back, right? All right, but it says Silas also came back from Macedonia. So we don't know where Silas went. We don't know. Silas was also sent to Macedonia. Not to Thessalonica, but somewhere in Macedonia. Some scholars think it was to Philippi. That maybe he sent Silas on to Philippi to get a report there. Another church there that uh, Paul and his team had planted. So, uh, now we pick up in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6-10. through 10. Timothy has returned to Paul. He's, uh, he's in Corinth. He's now in Corinth. He's returned after, you know, being dispatched to Uh, Thessalonica, and it says in verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you, you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, in all this stuff happening to us, Getting this report, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, and then Nasby says, really live. I think that's appropriate. Now we really live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking. In your faith. So why was First Thessalonians written? And beloved, a lot of this is background. You know, I'm not telling you how to, you know, I'm not giving you specific exhortations today because we're just looking at the letter. We'll get into those, okay? But we need to understand the background so we can appreciate the letter and rightly interpret it. The occasion for the letter was the return of Timothy from Thessalonica with his report. The report was 
on one level, very good, favorable. It, re- it relieved, as one writer said, it relieved Paul's anxiety and filled him with praise and exaltation. He, look, in the midst of all this stuff that's happening to us, we rejoice to hear this good news about you, yeah? You see it? It's right there. But the report wasn't entirely favorable. It wasn't entirely favorable. And we see that because as you begin to move through uh, 1 Thessalonians, it's five chapters, Paul seems to be addressing um, or refuting certain charges or slanderous insinuations that might have been circulating or were circulating in Thessalonica against the missionary. So as we move through the letter, you'll see he's addressing those things. Like, and, it, and it appears that Timothy probably came back and said, oh, they're saying all kinds of really terrible stuff about you, Paul and Silas. And so it appears that Paul needs to address that to reassure them we are not terrible people, and so we'll see that as we move through. He wants to make sure they, they aren't uh, persuaded or fooled by some of the things that are being said. And then um, uh, one writer says, but Paul's answer to them, that's, that as he addresses those things, that's really chapters 2 and 3, was not evoked by a feeling of wounded personal pride. It wasn't like he was upset that, you know, personally that they were saying those things about him. Rather, it was motivated by a passionate concern to safeguard the faith of his converts. See, he wanted to make sure, don't turn. You got the truth. We are the truth tellers. Don't believe these lies. And so Paul, part of Thessalonians is Paul addressing these matters to these uh, Christians in Thessalonica and uh, to make sure that they don't, aren't uh, persuaded by the slander, okay? So that's the re- one of the reasons for the letter. But a further purpose of the letter was to, as he said, meet definite needs in the church, which Timothy had no doubt reported to him. Now Timothy has come back. So certain things that needed to be dealt with. And that's chapters four and five. Paul devotes himself uh, to those things in chapters four and five. And um, again, the writer says, Paul's uh, answers and instructions were further proof of his unselfish interest in the spiritual welfare of the readers. He's not, getting, he's not getting anything financially or anything for this, but he's taking the time. He wants to write back to them, which is 1 Thessalonians, and he wants to address these things to make sure they don't go off course, that they stay the course, that they stay in the faith and, and, and continue to comply with the things that they were taught and instructed in. And even there, that's where he addresses eschatology because there's some questions about the return of Jesus. And he wants to make sure, he doesn't tell them, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe about that, it's okay. No, he spends some time making sure they understand the truth concerning the return of Christ. It's important to their welfare and their well-being and their sanctification. So those are the things there. All right, just one application for you this morning you can walk away with. One, just one from all that. Uh, from that introduction, long introduction to Thessalonians and the circumstances surrounding uh, the occasion for the letter, which I hope was, I hope was helpful to you um, and will be as we look at the letter more in detail. But it's this. Think about the, the letter exists only because the church exists, okay? The church exists because of Paul and his ministry team's sacrificial love for God, for Christ, and for the church, for the, for the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. They went in there uh, as they were making their rounds. They went and they proclaimed the gospel and a church was formed. Uh, but it really exists because Paul's so concerned. He doesn't just like lead them to Christ and then says, all right, let's keep moving on. His heart is for the people of God, right? For this little local church and every local church that he has worked with and planted, right? Because we know, and Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11, and apart from the other things, which when he lists them, all kinds of tragic things happening to him and persecutions and all this, apart from all that, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety or concern for all the churches, Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? I mean, Paul's heart, his love was for the church. And so it's because of that he says, Timothy, we really could use you here, but we're gonna send you back. We think you're the right guy to get, you can get back in there, get out. We want you to encourage that little body, that little flock, that brand new little church up there. And please bring us back a report so that we might know how they're doing. And even in the midst of all of his junk and stuff happening to him and all the persecutions, when the report comes back, he's rejoicing. He says, now we can really live. Yeah. All right. And Paul says this, 
Several couple times in Corinthians, imitate me as I am of Christ, as I imitate Christ. I urge you, brothers, be imitators of me. And at the minimum, that imitation would include his great love, his great concern for the local church. And, and so, I mean, he, he was concerned about their spiritual well-being. He was concerned about his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he was, he was concerned about those who had not yet become a part of that church, but were chosen before the foundations of the world to become a part of that church. In fact, he says in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. He's running from prison, bound with chains as a criminal, right? So, you know, he's in prison. He can say, oh, this is, oh, this is terrible. What has my life come to? Where are you, God? But then he says, but the word of God is not bound. I may be bound, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, for all those chosen before the foundation of the world, for the bride of Christ, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's talking about the elect who have not yet professed faith in Jesus. So that's, that is his hope, his focus, his life. So oh, this is all I want to say. You and I are not the Apostle Paul. We are not the Apostle Paul. And we have not been given the same specific instructions that the Apostle Paul has. But Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ loved the church. He laid down his life for it. Paul loved the church and laid down his life for it. Do you love the church? Do you? How much of your time throughout the week your mental capacities, your energies, how much are given to the church or for the church? And by that I mean not a building, but the people of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. How often do you pray for them? Are you seeking to see them grow? Not just yourself, but seeking to see them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you seek to get to know them that you might know their needs and their weaknesses and their strengths, do you? So that you might minister to them the gospel. Ask yourself these questions. Do you really love the church? So much stuff going on around us, beloved. So much craziness. And it's so easy to get caught up in all that. But Paul was like a laser beam, and we need to be too focused on what really matters in the end. The economy, the government, those things have their place, but they should not have the place in the Christian's life. Do you love the church? It'll show up. It'll show up in your calendar. It'll show up in your checking account. It will show up. Do you love the church? Father in heaven, help us. Oh, I, I trust many do truly love the church and we are so easily distracted and taken us aside and forgetful people. Help us, Father, to, to keep Focus, but Father, the truth really, really would probably be for many of us or within Christendom, the church is maybe just a thing in their life. A thing. Maybe not even a big thing. Oh, Father, help us. May we repent of that. When it's all said and done, it will be with the church that we are spending eternity with our Lord who gave himself for it. It will be with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we will forever sing your praises and worship you. Oh, Father, help us to love the church even more. Help us, Father. Reveal to us the areas in our life where we have let those things come in and consume us, where the church is an afterthought. Father, help us to love the church. Help your people, your body, the body of Christ, love.
The church, which is your creation, it's yours. Purchased by the blood of your dear son. Oh, may we love the church. Father, work in our hearts and and work in our hearts to see that there are others who are not yet part of that church that you have elected before the foundations of the world that they may be in Christ. And how do they come to be in Christ? Through the preaching of your word, through the preaching of the gospel. So may we not keep our mouths shut, but may we open them boldly, courageously and accurately proclaiming the truth of Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And he is the returning King. May we proclaim it unashamed because it is through those means that you bring your elect into the body of Christ. Help us to love the church. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen.